Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, June 22nd, 2018, and you're listening to Up to Date, our weekly recap of science news. I'm Indre Viscontis. <laughs> I'm Kishore Hari. Uh, let's talk about mind-controlling robots, because why not? Like, you mean like brain-computer interface things, or like my phone? <laughs> I was thinking brain-computer interfaces okay. more than your phone. Well, I mean, when I say mind-controlling robots, it's less, it's not really mind-controlling robots, but it's as close as we are right now um, by using EEG to control robotic arms. Next week, MIT roboticist Daniela Russ is demoing a new system to use an EEG cap Uh, you know, those multi-electrode caps strapped right to your head to control a single robot arm to control tasks, but without the errors that we normally see with this kind of wireless control. You're pretty familiar with EEG technology. It's pretty error prone. I mean, well, if it's not wired, yeah, if it's if it's wireless, uh, it's very noisy and it's really hard to continue to get a continuous signal. For example, Um, you know, you have to make sure that the leads are directly onto the scalp. So anyone with big hair, that's problematic, (laughs) Um, you know, and yeah, so so it's 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 pretty messy. It's a messy tool. Even when it is wired, I've heard when you use it for this specific type of control where it's reading particular wave patterns and then trying to translate that into specific controls on a different prosthesis like a robotic arm, even with the fine control from a wired system, it still has a lot of noise in order for us to be able to think like robot arm move forward three degrees, robot uh, arm move left 20 degrees. Uh, that kind of fine control is hard. Yeah, because there's a lot of noise in the signal. So yeah. we do a lot of pre or post processing of EEG data to figure out where the signal is and separate it from the noise. So this team embraced a different solution. They embraced the fact that error is a natural part of learning. So what they did is basically identify signals that arise when somebody recognizes an error has happened. Like that mm-hmm. wave pattern, like, oops, there's been a goof. And what they found is that signal was pretty reliably detected by the EEG. And then in concert with a different set of electrodes that were placed on a forearm uh, that essentially mapped gesture control, they're able to give this robot arm a task of holding a drill and moving it towards three targets. And with a set of volunteers that tried this over a thousand times, what they did is when they noticed Uh, when the volunteer noticed that it was not going in the right direction and had that, oops, it's going the wrong way feeling, the robot arm would instantly stop. And then the uh, volunteer would again use gestures to indicate which way for it to go. And the system of error correction and relearning via gesture made the robot 
much more successful in completing its task in terms of moving towards a target with a drill. Upwards of 97% accuracy, as reported by the group. Now, the demo we have yet to see, which actually uh, will happen at a conference next week, but that kind of methodology where there's this feedback loop constantly supporting uh, the robot learning where to go, that seems actually reasonable to use with, with EEG. Yeah. And also the signal that you're talking about, you know, is pretty robust. Like, you know, if, if you're just looking at someone's EEG signal and trying to, you know, figure out what they're thinking about, that's hard. If you're just looking for a particular wave pattern, that's a lot easier. Uh, and the error detection one is the one that's probably the most studied and the one that we know the most about. And I actually got to try out a system from this group called Control Labs, where they eventually they essentially put a bracelet kind of around my my forearm uh, and map gesture control. And they showed me on a computer by having these electrodes all around my, uh, my arm in this bracelet, they are able to track the electrical signals that were being sent from my brain to my hand. And so as I was just, you know, wiggling my hand, holding up different fingers, like creating wave patterns, even tracing letters through the air, they're able to create a very accurate model of my hand in a computerized uh, simulation of it. Hmm. Uh, and Technically, technically, they're able to get the signal quicker than my hand was because they picked up the electrical signal before it got down to my fingertips, before it actually like went into motion. Now, we're talking in the order of like microseconds, so that doesn't really count. But it was amazing how much uh, how much fine control they're able to get to that. So I think the other trick here is how they're using this really finely controlled gesture control system so that the robot has intricate details on sort of where to go. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is all the training that's involved for that robot to execute specific tasks based on the gestures that I make and have that be consistent from one person to the next person. But this is a pretty big leap forward and could uh, be a huge benefit to manufacturing systems uh, across the world. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. So the story that caught my eye this week is also about the brain, probably not too surprising given my interests. Um, but the source is kind of surprising. So uh, I sometimes read a blog by uh, a chemist, a former chemist named Derek Lowe called In the Pipeline. And I did not expect him to be schooling me about you know the, the potential cause of Alzheimer's disease, but uh, he did in this particular uh, current blog post. So he actually he turned me on to a uh, paper in Neuron, uh, which has just been released by uh, a group from Mount Sinai headed by a scientist named Redhead, which I think is kind of cool, or Reedhead, I'm not sure how, how you pronounce it. But anyway, this goes back to this idea that there is some component to Alzheimer's disease that involves infection. What? Yeah. So I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's been kind of this, um, you know, fringe idea or like this kind of flickering controversy that something about the way that um, the plaques and tangles in the brain that are the pathological signs of Alzheimer's disease spread, um, that there might be some kind of contagion involved. Like, almost like a catalyst we're talking about? Yeah, like a catalyst, um, like a prion disease in a sense. Uh, but, you know, essentially you've got these these proteins that misfold and you know how how you know and, and eventually they they lead to the pathology and sort of what is the initial cause of that um, and there have been links with you know viruses and and um, other infectious diseases but none of them have really been that compelling um, so in this particular study they actually looked at two specific uh, viruses human herpes uh, 6a and 7 uh, which are very common in fact like you know 90 percent of kids in the u.s already have you know some version of of uh, 
these viruses. And they found that in the brains of uh, patients with Alzheimer's disease who show the pathology, so, so you know, postmortem, these are postmortem studies, um, there were higher levels of, uh, you know, sort of the viral DNA uh, of, of these two viruses compared with 300 controls. So they had, it's a big brain study. There are 622 um, Alzheimer's disease brains. And they were from three independent geographical cohorts. So they weren't just, you know, from one particular area where you might say, well, maybe there's just like a higher incidence of that virus in that particular area. And normally that would be like, okay, well, maybe there's this correlation. We don't really understand it. Um, if there's lots of, you know, viral DNA in the brains of the controls, just, you know, not as much of these particular Yeah, just viruses. as artifacts. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, and so that's the first question. Like, is this just, you know, a coincidence or is there like also there's a chicken and an egg problem? Like, is it just like once you get Alzheimer's disease, you're just more at risk of holding on to some of these um, byproducts. But what Derek found really compelling, and I totally agree with him, is that we actually know that the gene expression that results from these particular viruses does affect a whole bunch of um, genes, including those related to amyloid, uh, which is, you know, the protein that that we know is involved in, in forming plaques. Um, so, then there's like this sort of other side of work that shows that when you sort of manipulate um, the genetics uh, of mice uh, in, with this with some of these same factors, uh, you do actually see more amyloid plaques in those mice. So it, it there you know it's it's early days, but there is potentially a causal mechanism here that is exciting for us who are interested in treating Alzheimer's disease because maybe using some kind of you know, retroviral therapy or vaccines, you know, we could imagine, imagine you could vaccinate your kid against Alzheimer's disease. Now, this is this is postmortem, as you said. So like the other I mean, there's so much work to be done here. But one of the other, you know, variables to consider is like, when is this happening? Is this onset early in life? So these are late onset patients, I think, for the most part, um, which usually which is the majority of patients with mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease. Um, and they usually have a have a less of a genetic component. So early onset Alzheimer's disease is, is more highly genetically specific. Um, so this just it actually seems to account for, you know, the majority of people who do end up showing symptoms of the disease. Wow, that's actually very promising. Though. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. So we'll have to keep our eye out on on uh, how that that particular work progresses. Uh, last story this week is uh, I think we have to talk about Coco. Yeah, uh, Coco sadly passed away this week at the age of forty six. Our primate friend. I think people our age have known Coco for what feels like decades now. Yeah, um, Coco. I think uh, rose onto the scene. Uh, Coco was actually born here in San Francisco at the San Francisco Zoo, uh, and uh, a biologist at Stanford, Penny Patterson, uh, began working with him um, from an early age with this idea of trying to really understand the the ape brain and and how they communicate and their ability and capacity to to have uh, emotional states and use, you know, human based uh, mechanisms to communicate with us. Primarily, she rose to fame by teaching Coco uh, American Sign Language. And uh, that led to Coco express being one of the most expressive animals in all of human history, in terms of communicating everything from, you know, basic, here's what's going on uh, in, during my day to expressing loss. I mean, Coco had a pet cat at one point, <laughs> and expressed like deep emotional loss when that cat passed away. Uh, there's some famous videos of Coco uh, spending time with Robin Williams and them mimicking each other back and forth. 
And so there was an incredible way that Coco captured the zeitgeist, like just was like everyone knew Coco. Everyone had seen these videos uh, and started to understand that primates, especially some of our closest primate relatives, uh, they're to be cherished because they have a capacity beyond what we think. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if you have trouble uh, grasping evolution, Coco, you know, watching some videos of Coco is a great way to sort of convince yourself that, you know, we really do see precursors of the things that we think are uniquely human in the other great apes. It's important to note anytime there is a passing, I think we tend to sort of lionize and gloss over some things. I think it's important to note that Penny was often criticized for being too close to Coco and that biasing some of the research. Uh, especially later in in Coco's uh, life, because their interdependence, like how close they were, did change the nature of the research and, and change the nature uh, the nature of some of the questions. And so, while Coco absolutely changed our perspective on what's capable in ape mind, I think later in life we saw some things that you might consider stunts, like Coco at one time uh, was trotted out to talk about climate change. You know, I don't think that was driven from, you know, what Coco wanted to do. And we're probably also at a point where what we learn from Coco in terms of the ability to understand sign language and communicate facially, uh, that's a field that we don't need a lot more research in that particular primate. Um, There's a lot of work been done in chimps around this, too. So it's not like we need another Coco. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like setting your own child. Like there's. (laughs) You can only be so objective um, in terms of how you interpret. And of course, anthropomorphization is is a, is a big problem. And actually, that's actually a, a nice segue into our uh, main interview for this week, which will um, drop on Monday, which is uh, with Karen Bondar, uh, the biologist with a twist. I'm going to be talking to her about motherhood in the animal kingdom. Uh, and here, too, it's really fun to anthropomorphize and to sort of see, you know, elements of our own experiences and other animals. There's a danger to that if you want to remain objective. Um, but I think there's also a lot we can learn about ourselves from that from that process. So that's it for Up to Date. Join us on Monday as we drop uh, my interview with Dr. Karen Bondar. See you then. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.